Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkshire, host, and our guest is Nicolee Natras, a visiting professor at Yale in the Ethics, Politics, and Economics Department and the International Affairs Council. Professor Natras is based at the University of Cape Town in South Africa, where she is a professor of economics and the director of the AIDS and Society Research Unit. Her research interests include unemployment and economic policy in South Africa, the political economy of antiretroviral treatment, AIDS policy, and AIDS denialism in South Africa. She has written numerous scholarly articles and several books, including The Moral Economy of AIDS in South Africa and Mortal Combat, AIDS Denialism and the Struggle for Antiretrovirals in South Africa. Today we'll talk with her about her AIDS research. Welcome, Professor Natras. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You are an economist. How did you become interested in AIDS policy? That's a, it's a good question because it was a very personal experience that got me interested in AIDS policy. That although it was very clear by the late 1990s that South Africa was in the grip of a huge AIDS epidemic, it hadn't really sunk into, into my consciousness as a, an important academic subject, and particularly not one for an economist. But then one day, an old domestic servant who used to work for our family came to visit. Mm -hmm. And she told us the story about how her 30-year-old daughter had died of AIDS, mm -hmm. left her with a two-year-old HIV-positive grandchild. And this is a st um, story that's repeated right across the country. But when I sat and listened to her, what she was telling me was a story about how you know, all of her investment in her daughter had just simply disappeared because she was dead. I mean, in terms of human capital mm -hmm. investment, apart from the emotional one. And the little child was getting sick a lot. And whenever it, it failed or it got um, diarrhea, high fevers, she'd rush it off to the hospital. And she was literally blowing through her life savings, trying to keep her grandchild alive. It was a very sad occasion. But that evening, I listened to the news, and there was the health minister saying, we can't afford to use antiretrovirals to prevent the transmission of HIV from mother to child. And I thought, what does she mean by we can't afford it? I know that this little girl has been rushed off to the hospital at least six times in the last couple of months. And surely I thought to myself, it would be much cheaper to have just saved the life of the child by treating the mother so that she didn't pass on the virus to the child. So the next day I did a, a few uh, quick calculations. I phoned up some epidemiologists, some hospitals, and I figured out, well, you know, how much would it cost us to test all pregnant women, give them antiretroviral treatment just to prevent them from passing okay. the virus on, uh, and then compare that with how much it would cost for these sick children to go to the hospital several times over the course of their very short lives and then die. And it turned out that it was much, much cheaper for the government to implement mother-to-child transmission prevention than it was to not do it, and then pick up these cases of the, the grandchildren coming to the hospital. So I wrote this letter off to the newspaper saying, what's wrong with the health minister? Of course, it's much cheaper to do this. And the auditor general phoned me up the next day and said, oh, could he see the, the proper study? that was behind my letter. And I said, I'm just finalizing it. <laughs> and then desperately, I, I did the study a lot more thoroughly, mm -hmm. and pretty much the numbers were the same, thank goodness. Uh, and then after that, the Treatment Action Campaign got hold of me and said, would I be part of a court case to try and force the government to roll out treatment? And I was. Mm -hmm. And after a couple of years of struggle, we succeeded in forcing the government to change its, its policies and to, in fact, roll out treatment. So for me, that was... 
um, an accident really, an mm -hmm. emotional investment which then turned into a piece of academic work and activism. Mm -hmm. And then it structured my career in, for the next couple of years because then once I was on this kind of AIDS bandwagon, I couldn't really get off it. Okay. So why do you think the government would say they couldn't afford to when that really wasn't the case? Well, that, that started to bother me also. First of all, when I, made that, when I did that initial study, I thought they just simply weren't mistaken. They weren't thinking about the costs that they were saving. They were mm -hmm. just looking at the direct costs of the program. So initially, my first work kind of was almost like educational. Well, if you take a broader set of costs into account, then it m makes much more sense. But over the years, the cost of antiretroviral treatment fell, and yet the government's resistance to using it either for mother-to-child transmission and prevention or for the general population just remained really strong. So I began to think that it wasn't about a misunderstanding of the economics, that there was something else going on, mm -hmm. something to do with ideas, something to do with politics. Okay, and um, what did you discover? Well, that's, I then started <laughs> to re-look at the history, and that was really the, um, the impetus for my second book, which okay. was on... Um, the struggle for antiretroviral okay. treatment. And what I then discovered was that the power of ideas was much more important and that the key thing that lay behind the government's refusal to roll out antiretroviral treatment wasn't a misunderstanding about the costs. It was actually the president, then Thabo Mbeki. Mm -hmm. He bought the idea of a bunch of AIDS denialists from America and Australia who have been arguing since the late 80s that HIV does not exist, or if it does exist, it's harmless. And um, if you have it, you certainly shouldn't take antiretrovirals because that'll make you sick. It's, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really interesting group of theories that are not necessarily coherent, but they fall under this rubric of AIDS denialism. Denialism. And they tend to be believed by people who are super skeptical of science mm -hmm. and super suspicious of pharmaceuticals. And um, they managed to reach out to Tabo Mbeki and convince him that he should not be rolling out the treatment. And him and his health minister um, really uh, resisted at every point they could. So the history of AIDS policy in South Africa is really interesting. It's really a fight between the AIDS activists and the AIDS physicians and the scientists to say, hey, we've got these fantastic therapies that can prevent children from getting HIV and can help adults live much longer productive lives. And to sort of ra railed against that was the state saying no. Mm -hmm. And uh, politically it's interesting also because it wasn't just the whole state, it was Thabo Mbeki personally and his health minister personally, whereas the rest of the cabinet and most of the ANC were quite baffled by it. Mm -hmm. And so in the end, this huge movement from civil society together with the scientists uh, pushed, pushed the, 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 the parliament and the cabinet into rejecting Mbeki's views. And his, his defeat on AIDS probably was one of the reasons why he actually was pushed out of the presidency early. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is uh, baffling how someone could have that um, viewpoint today, given all of the scientific research. Um, let's talk about um, AIDS policy in South Africa today. Um, give us some specifics of what's going on. Well, things have improved dramatically mm -hmm. since Thabo Mbeki was deposed as president. And we've got a new president called Jacob Zuma, who the AIDS activists were initially a bit concerned about because he famously, um, in a trial, he was on trial for rape, for which he was acquitted, 
um, and his, uh, the person who was accused of raping was an HIV-positive person. And he hadn't used a condom when having sex with her. And his, his um, story to the press was, and to the court, oh, he had a shower afterwards, so that's how he protected himself. So everybody was a bit concerned that a president who said such a silly thing about, you know, showering does not protect you from HIV. Right. What, what we all worried, what was he going to do about AIDS policy? Mm -hmm. But he seems to have defined himself totally in opposition to Thabo Mbeki. So just as Thabo Mbeki was a denialist, he's actually been really strong on the science. And so he's had very good advice. Mm -hmm. And since we've had the new president, our AIDS policy has been much better, much clearer. But, you know, they've got a big legacy. They're going to have to do work hard mm -hmm. to, to get going again. Um, we've got many more people on, to get on treatment than we've already got on treatment. Um, South Africa has more HIV-positive people than anywhere in the world. Wow. It's an extremely big challenge. So what do you think needs to happen um, in order to combat that high, high percentage of people with AIDS? Well, we need to work on two fronts, right? The one is prevention and mm -hmm. the other is treatment. But that's kind of easier said than done on the prevention side mm -hmm. because you can give out all sorts of messages about HIV. You can give people um, the correct information. But there's an enormous amount of denialism that happens at the personal level mm -hmm. and people like to believe that they're not as exposed to it as, as they think they are. Mm -hmm. And people are very reluctant to get tested. So I, I think that the best way we're going to get into prevention is to make sure we roll out the treatment as fast as possible. Because the more people that we can encourage to come and get tested and put on treatment, the, more, the greater proportion of the adult population we'll have that knows their status. Mm -hmm and hopefully that will help as well. Okay. But also putting adults on treatment reduces their infectivity. And so even though adults live longer on treatment than mm -hmm. they would if they weren't treated, they are less likely to pass the virus on, even assuming that they don't use safe sex the whole time, mm -hmm. because your viral load gets down to um, undetectable levels when you're on antiretroviral treatment. So I'm kind of hoping that we can build new forms of prevention on the back of a treatment rollout. But it's a huge challenge. I think we need to involve ethnographers to help us uh, mm -hmm. understand more about why people are resistant to safe sex messaging. So uh, I assume there is communication out to the general population about AIDS. What I'm curious about is person to person, is it a secret or do people speak about having the disease? Culturally, how, how does that affect um, you know, what's going on? There's a lot of stigma, stigma around there HIV, and, um, and so as a result, people tend not to disclose. Okay. So the Treatment active Action Campaign, which spent its initial few years fighting Tom and Becky over AIDS policy, is now concentrating much more on trying to get people to disclose to their families, because they reckon that the more you disclose about, look, I'm living positively and I'm on treatment, the better for them, because it's really bad for you if you have secrets. It's a form of, of stress, mm -hmm. particularly trying to manage all who knows and who doesn't sure. know and who's going to find out. So it's better for people to actually be open themselves. But at the same time, it's also that those individuals could um, change society's attitudes mm -hmm. by being, you know, by making it clear that HIV isn't a death sentence and right. that you can live and that all sorts of people are, are vulnerable to it. Mm -hmm. So disclosure is an issue but people are still resisting it and I don't really blame them. It's a difficult thing to, to admit to people. Mm -hmm.
Okay, let's talk about the current research you're doing um, that has to do with denialism and con conspiracy theories. Talk a little bit about that, what you're doing. I suppose it's still an offshoot on this, mm -hmm. my obsession with what went wrong in South Africa. You know, the question, how could Thabo Mbeki have, have bought into these denialist beliefs? Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I was looking at him, I got interested in how anybody buys into these denialist right. beliefs. And what you often find is that there's two kinds of ways that people resist the AIDS epidemic. The one is to say it's harmless. HIV um, is a harmless passenger virus, it's caused, and the disease that we see as AIDS is caused by poverty. And that's mm -hmm. the variety that Tabo Mbeki bought into. Other people say, no, it is a real virus, but it was invented. Normally they say it's invented by the Americans, by mm. the CIA, and it was used to try and control the black population. And linked to that is a distrust of all medical information. Because you'd have thought if somebody told you that this was a weapon of war, surely people would then try and protect themselves from mm -hmm. it. You know, I would have thought that that would actually really cause people to mm -hmm. use, to have safe sex. But no, apparently what happens is there's this general distrust of any kind of information and linked to this is a belief also that um, AIDS is more easily spread and if you're going to get it, you're going to get it anyway. So it's accompanied by a form of fatalism. Mm -hmm. So when I started reading about this, I thought, let's see, why, why is it that there is a sense of fatalism and why, who buys into this notion that there's a, an evil empire out there trying to kill you personally and there's nothing you can do about it? And how does that affect AIDS prevention efforts? Mm -hmm. And we've done some surveys about this in Cape Town. And we ask people questions about safe sex behavior. These are young adults from 20 to 30, mm -hmm. the use of condoms. And we also ask them about their beliefs about HIV. Do they believe it exists? Do they believe it was created as a weapon of war? And we've been running correlations. Mm -hmm. And we find there's an incredibly strong correlation between people who think that HIV was um, a weapon of war, a bioweapon bio created by um, scientists in America, and their refusal to use condoms. Mm -hmm. And so my next phase is to try and unpack that. Is it about masculinity? Because it's mostly men that believe this. Mm -hmm. Men believe in AIDS conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Women tend to go for the denialist view of things. Interesting. So to put in anthropological work, psychological work, and economic work to try and see what's driving those beliefs and whether we can, we can learn something about how best to reach out to people to make sure that they do protect themselves from, from HIV. Right, okay. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your research. You're doing wonderful work. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. For more information about Professor Natchez and her work, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.